Well, uh, if you open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, um, and while you're going there, a few years ago, there was a story that was circulating uh, of an incident, it was circulating on the internet, as stories do, of an incident that occurred up on Lake Michigan, up in the, the colder parts of northern Michigan, uh, of the northern Lake Michigan. Um, and there, the story goes like this, a man purchased a brand new Lincoln Navigator with monthly payments of nearly $600. He'd had it less than a week when he and a friend decided the best way to break this in would be go, to go on some kind of expedition, and so they decided to go hunting, bird hunting, out on the lake, and, um, and uh, at this time of year, you've, uh, many of the birds have flown south, and so there's different different versions of the story, what bird they're hunting or whatever. But anyway, they go out on the frozen parts of this lake in their Lincoln Navigator, um, and they bring along with them their guns and their trusty black Labrador retriever. And they drive out onto the middle of this huge iced-over lake, and they want to make a kind of a natural landing area for the birds, uh, a place that they, would, that they would come and land on the water. And so... Uh, that's going to have to be bigger than just like what you would drill with an auger, an ice drill. So they, the genius number one decides to, do, to bust this hole open with a stick of dynamite a 40, with a 40-second fuse. Um, but he's afraid that if he puts the dynamite on the ice and runs for it, that, uh, that he'll slip on the ice and not make a clean getaway. And so instead, he decides... He's going to light this 40-second fuse and just throw it as far as he can. Now, the key detail to this story is, do you remember, besides their guns, what else they brought along with them? A black Labrador retriever. <laughs> what, 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 what do retrievers do? So they throw, the, they throw this uh, stick of dynamite, and the retriever wants to retrieve. So the dog takes off and captures the stick of dynamite with this burning 40-second fuse, Right, as the, right at the time it hits the ice. And so, of course, this story is kind of sad. And as the two men yell and scream and wave their arms to tell the dog to drop the dynamite, the dog, and the dog thinks the men are cheering him on, and so he keeps coming. One of the guys panics. He grabs the shotgun, shoots the dog, because he didn't know what else to do. He didn't want to, but he's running towards him with a stick of dynamite. Um, the shotgun, though, was just loaded with scatter shot. So that's not enough to bring down a big, you know, 70, 80-pound dog. And so it phases the dog, but he keeps coming. And so the owner um, shoots again, and the dog now is afraid, terrified that his owner's going insane. And so he takes off to find cover, and the place that he finds cover out in the middle of a frozen lake is right under this brand-new Lincoln Navigator. So 10 seconds later, all that is left is a gigantic hole in the middle of the lake and these two idiots standing there holding a shotgun. And of course, the insurance company explained that there is nothing in their policy that covers sinking a vehicle in a lake by the illegal use of explosives. And so the man had not even made his, the first of, and so the story goes that he was making payments on this $600 a month payments on this vehicle that's at the bottom of Lake Michigan. And now, the story, like, it, they say it's not, it's not a verifiable story. It doesn't really matter. I read it while I was reading it, while I was trying to find some kind of evidence for this story. I did actually find a story in New Mexico where 
this guy catches a mouse that's been a nuisance in his home and he lights it on fire or throws it in a, throws it in a trash heap that he's burning and the mouse on fire runs towards his house and actually catches the exterior of the house on fire and burns it to the ground. Like, that's a real story. A real story, okay? Um, and the, point, the point of me tell, opening with these stories is a lot of people live foolishly without giving much forethought to how their actions are going to affect their future. There's not a lot, a lot of people live without giving much forethought to how their actions are going to affect their future. And you may not have done anything that stupid, but what, 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 I, what this series that I started over a year ago and kind of got sidetracked is what on in the book of Ecclesiastes, the author or authors, as we talked about last week, um, Solomon is definitely a author. There may be another author, author who comes back and writes um, divinely inspired uh, perspective on his very depressed and hedonistic musings. Um, or it may have just been Solomon kind of in conversation with himself in the latter part of his life. Regardless, what the author or authors of Ecclesiastes want you to do is to stop and think about the decisions that you are making and what your life is adding up to, to encourage, and to encourage you to view life from the perspective of where are your decisions going to lead. And last week, we saw that the majority of Ecclesiastes um, was written by Solomon, who had endless wealth, wisdom, women, power, and a list of accomplishments that anyone would be proud of. Like one way to think of it would be that he was simultaneously a prolific author, scientist, rock star, philanthropist, and the wealthiest person in the world. I mean, he had it all. He was literally the top. He was the, like, if there ever was an A plus list, he was the only one on it. You know, there was there's A listers, but he was the A plus list. He was the guy that had that everybody wanted at every every event. Okay, so. Uh, but even what, what he does in Ecclesiastes, it says, in spite of all this grandeur, it, he, goes, he, he sets himself to exploring all of it and deciding what is the meaning of life. And so the title of the series has been Man's Search for Meaning. And in spite of all this grandeur, he just ended up feeling like the Hebrew word is havel, which can be translated vanity or meaningless or emptiness. Or, uh, but what it literally means is vapor or smoke. And what I explained to you last week, and I think this is my favorite way to think about it, it's like a cloud. A cloud looks very solid and substantive from the outside, but when you press into it, you find out it's full of nothing. Um, and this is what most of life is like, Solomon said. So I, I, I made a lot of jokes or, or a lot of plays on words with the word Havel, and so I was just wondering, like, if I, got, if I had shirts made that just said, what the Havel, as a conversation starters, how many of you would buy one? I'm just curious, no? Just a couple of you? Okay. Uh, because what the idea is, that's, that's kind of what Solomon is saying, is what is life? It's so pointless. It's so empty. It's, so, it's just vanity. It looks substantive. You can do all kinds of things, but really it all just amounts to nothing. You can just fly right through it, fall right through it. It's not going to catch you. It's not, it's not going to add up to anything. Um, there were three things in particular. He said the pursuit of pleasure and power, um, wisdom, or at least Wisdom as a way of ensuring success in life and worldly justice are all these empty, meaningless, vain uh, pursuits. But the second voice in Ecclesiastes, whether that's Solomon or somebody else, we'll just call them the editor. So the editor breaks into Solomon's monologue from time to time, sometimes affirming, sometimes correcting what Solomon says. And what he makes clear 
is that pleasure and power are good things. Pleasure and power are good things. They're created by God for our enjoyment and for the stewardship of our world. But if you depend on them for happiness, you'll be disappointed. The editor breaks in and says, wisdom is a good thing. God gives us, in fact, the whole book of Proverbs, which is full of wisdom, and says that the Scriptures is useful for teaching. Um, but even but the editor says, wise living doesn't guarantee smooth sailing or a prosperous life. But wisdom is good. It's a good thing to go after. And the editor says, worldly justice is good. Justice is a gift of God. It is a, it's a character, a characteristic of God. It is something that will mark and that marks the kingdom of God and marks the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And we should always fight for worldly justice. But as many of you know, worldly justice often lets you down. It is not a purpose. It's not a purpose on its own. So Solomon admits this, though. It's not, he's, he's not just wallowing in despair. He's also just saying that my perspective only takes into account how things look under the sun. And that's something I emphasized in the first half of the series a year ago, is again and again and again, he says, I've seen this thing under the sun. It's, it's, it's a phrase he repeats over and over again, and what it really means is just how things look without the perspective of God, apart from a life in God. And the editor throughout the book brings back in heaven's perspective. That's what the editor is doing. Now, you may be wondering, like maybe, maybe you've been refreshing your memory on Ecclesiastes, how do you know when the editor is speaking and when it's just old, possibly crunk out of his mind, Solomon? And that's from the text, by the way. He says that he went about enjoying wine while maintaining a mind of wisdom, like as if that's possible, right? Uh, so which is it? How do you know when it's the editor and when it's just old, grumpy, possibly drunk Solomon's musings? Um, in most places, I think it's really obvious, especially after you get the gist of the book's message. But the editor is the one who tends to draw conclusions. The, the uh, Solomon seems to be kind of just musing, but the editor draws conclusions. Regardless, uh, the main point of the book is that life with God is the only place to find meaning. Life with God is the only place to find meaning. Now, I want to walk, through, walk with you through some, some of these conclusions, and that is the first conclusion as, as Solomon or the editor concludes this book. The, my header in the, in the Bible actually says the conclusion of the matter. Um, and verse 13 and 14 sums up how we, should, uh, how, how we should filter, discern, and process everything that's been said. It says, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, revere God, awe God, that's the, the various meanings of this word, and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Translation, the whole meaning of life. In man's search for meaning, the duty of man is to awe God, worship God, revere God, fear God, and keep His commands. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So the first the first conclusion that uh, we'll draw from the text that the, that the authors seem to be driving towards is seek the God who is above the Havel, who's above the Havel of life. At the end of the book, the editor takes, takes us back over the sun. Solomon has, has a, had us under the sun. Now we're going beyond the sun, beyond time, outside of time, into the, from the finite into the infinite. 
And he says, while it's true that you may not be able to tell just by looking around you that there is a sovereign, righteous judge, a loving God, a loving Father over the Son, you may not be able to tell that there is much purpose to everything that's going on around you or anything that is working this crazy world together for good, for, for good or renewing all things, as the Scriptures tell us, there, or, or a God who's going to bring justice and reward good and punish evil, the rest of the Bible assures you that there is. One of the many reasons that I, I find comfort in the Scriptures is that it does not shy away from the difficulty of the world around us. It does not, it does not speak in flowery words as though everything is all right, and it, it lets some of its protagonists wrestle with some very dark, despairing ideas about the world. But what it says is, nonetheless, there is a silver lining. God is on the throne, and He is above all of this, and He is good, and He will work for the good of those who love Him and who trust Him and are called according to His purpose, which is to revere Him, to worship Him, and keep His commands. See, Ecclesiastes is not the only book in the Bible. It's in there, and that's part of the reason I tend to trust the things that come out of here is because the Bible doesn't try to hide. It doesn't try to sugarcoat things so that you'll follow its religion. It tells you the whole story and says there is a God you can trust in the midst of all this chaos. But it's not the only book in the Bible, and, and the rest of the Scriptures point to this, even, even Ecclesiastes to some degree, point to the coming of Jesus, and His coming proves that there is a God over the Son who has not, never did, never will forget the world and will one day settle all accounts and make all things new and, and the inbreaking kingdom of, of heaven will ultimately one day be the final word. Ecclesiastes' point is not to turn you into an atheist. You're not supposed to read it and say, yeah, that's right, meaningless, meaningless, vanity, vanity, none of life makes sense. There is no God. That's not the point. The point, rather, is to turn you into a humbler theist, a more humble theist. Um, he's saying you need to put up your simplistic theories about God. Okay? You need to put up ideas like, if I do this or that, my life will be nothing but smooth sailing, or God has a reason for everything. I, I, I remember Greg Staggs. He was one of the guys who came and, to Topeka, I think, with Bruce and Mark when, uh, when they were scouting me, I guess, uh, for coming here. And he he, the sermon that I preached that day, I didn't remember this, but he did, and it was one of the first things he told me when I came here. Is, um, and the title of the sermon was just No Good Reason. And the point of the message was that what the Scriptures paint very clearly is that sometimes there really is no good reason for something happening. There's a bad reason that there's brokenness, there's sin, there's, there's distrust and disobedience to the God who created the world and the parameters that He put on, on the world. Um, but sometimes things just happen because people are bad and the world is broken, not because God willed it. We, and in fact, the reason the world is a mess is because we rejected and disobeyed the will of God, right? And, and at that time, he was dealing with cancer. And so for him, he, to, he told me when I came here, he said, for me, that, was, that settled it. It was like, I, that's what the Holy Spirit was speaking to me as, as, I, was, as, I, was hearing, as, as I was scouting you out. And for me, that was the moment that you became my pastor. That's what he said. And that, that's what we need to put away these simplistic, because these simplistic theories about God, they might, they, they're really what they are is they're running from, they're running from God instead of falling deeper and closer into him. They're, say, they're saying that I, I'm going to just ignore this brokenness and act like it's not real instead of embracing it 
but trusting that there's something bigger than it. And that's, what, that's, that's the tension that Solomon's wrestling with is, I have it all, but it kind of stinks nonetheless. What do I do with that? And well, what, what the editor or what Solomon is saying back to himself is, well, God is above it all, and one day things will be right, so I just need to accept when I apply wisdom and it doesn't work, and trust that, he'll be, that it'll be okay, and keep applying wisdom, keep pursuing God. Look instead, put away these simplistic theories and look instead to a God bigger than the Havel, a God who has promised to redeem us from the Havel, and who even loved us enough that he entered into the Havel that we created and jumped in the way of the logical outcome of that mess when he died on the cross. He took our sin, he who knew no sin, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And he now pursues his perfectly good plan, his good will for us with unrelenting faithfulness, even if what goes on in our life at a particular moment eludes us. Put your trust in that. The book of Job shows us that no matter what happens in your life, God will work for your good. You may just not have the perspective to see how that's possible. And it's okay to holler at God. It's okay to a degree but at some point, the Holy Spirit will say, okay, we've talked about this, we've talked about this, we've talked about this, now trust me. Now trust me. Do you, do you, make it, do you store the snow away and tell it when to fall down? Do you have a shed full of lightning bolts? That's what God says to Job. In other words, I'm bigger than this mess. I'm bigger than the Havel. So now we've talked about it. It's time to trust. John Piper says it this way. He says, at any given point, God is pursuing about 8 billion different things in the world, and you're probably aware of about three of them. So maybe it's good to just trust. <laughs> the, second, the second conclusion that I want to draw out of the text here, devote yourself to pursuing wisdom. This is conveyed a number of ways, but Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 2 says, the heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. Now, this is not a political statement. Go, don't go and post this on, on your page and say this is how you're supposed to vote. Uh, in the ancient culture, right in the ancient world meant skillful. If you're right-handed, you were skillful. If you were one of those weird old southpaws, if you were a lefty, that, con that, that connoted ineptness or clumsiness. So that's kind of, that's what he's, and you know, my Rhett is a lefty, uh, and he's probably, he's showing signs of being maybe one of the, he and Macy are right now are the more coordinated of, of the three older ones. So, so anyway, I, I don't know. That's just what they thought back then. But the point here is that, yes, life is not foolproof, but wisdom uh, will still lead you more often to skill and success in life than foolish, foolishness will. So pursue wisdom. Pursuing wisdom shouldn't be an afterthought you add to your life, like a garnish on a finished meal or a religious perfume you spray onto your life. It should be the foundation of your life. And so what I mean by that is I, I, I need to emphasize this more often. I know I did in the beginning, but know the Scriptures. Read them for yourselves. Internalize them. Sometimes read them just to get it into your heart. Like there's ways to do that. Uh, read big chunks of Scripture without pausing to reflect and just get it in you, like just get it in so that your mind like, oh, I know where that's at, so that your heart starts to hide things up in there. And then, and, and then there's other ways, read more meditatively, read devotionals, take notes, put notes in your Bible or in a journal, things that you will go back to and practice, know the scriptures. 
Know them until they become the very fabric of your life, until it's the dominant shaping force in your relationships, your career, your self-image. And what I mean by that is, you know, I joke all the time about how people find it awkward to be around the pastor. One of the reasons for that is, and that even happens in church sometimes, because sometimes uh, church folks are, are they're having a conversation that looks a little bit like Ecclesiastes. They're just talking about, bluntly, about the junk in the world, right? And, and, and I can do that too, but there, but there are times where it just as we're talking, the Scripture begins to fill my mind. The Scripture begins to fill my heart, and, and, and I, I'm thinking about it in a different way. And I'm not trying to be pious. I'm not trying, I'm not trying to be a know-it-all, and I'm, and so, but, I, but I'll throw Scripture out. And people will roll their eyes and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, the Scriptures say this. Sure, of course you would say that, Pastor. You know what I mean? Like, uh, and that's fine. But, but what I, what I want to encourage you is to get to a point where when you are, where, where you could have a conversation like Solomon, but then the editor, the Holy Spirit, gets to speak divinely over these these frustrations and the brokenness that you're talking about. God's not afraid of your brokenness, but if you'll allow Him and if you'll know the Scriptures, if you'll pursue wisdom, the editor will begin to talk back to the darkness and despair that tries to lie to you, that tries to fill your cup up so full that there's no room for the goodness of God. And so what I really want to just admonish, admonish you again and again is to uh, engage the Scriptures. And something I'm working on right now for, uh, for this fall is, is a Bible reading a plan that works along with the gospel project. There's some great informational videos about the Bible on YouTube, and I'm working on putting this together, and I'm going to ask you to, do, to get into groups of two or three and just really pursue God's Word together and meet together once a week, and I'll explain more about that later, but I'm just for you, for this, for this dedicated crowd that's here to dig into the Word tonight, I'm just throwing it out there. I want you to know the Scriptures. I want, I want you to know them until they, are, they become the very fabric of your life, where when life cuts you, you bleed God's Word. Think about that. When life cuts you, because when you're bleeding, what, what's also happening? Your body is doing this thing that's beginning to seal up the wound, right? And I didn't, I didn't research the science on that. But what, what I want to propose is that you get so full of, the, of God's Word, so full of the Holy Spirit, and so filled with the wisdom that He has, he has preserved for us in the Scriptures, that when life cuts you, that what, what coagulates and scabs and holds that wound together and begins to heal it back to life is the Word of God. <laughs> um, look, at what, look at what he says here. He said, he says in verse 1, he says, as dead flies give perfume a bad smell, this is chapter 10, verse 1, as dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. So the second thing I want to say to you about devoting yourself to the pursuit of wisdom is that as you know the Scriptures and you get filled with them, ruthlessly root out areas of your life that are inconsistent with what you're filling yourself with, with God's holy word. Ruthlessly Filter it out. Get rooted out. Get it out. Get the inconsistencies out. As you read the Scriptures, if, as like Danny pointed out on Sunday, that when you read, pray for your enemy. <laughs> Love those who persecute you. Don't, don't just read that and just say, God, I hope I can attain that ideal one day. Think about the people that you are tempted to hate and actively decide, I am going to commit an act of love <laughs> to them this week. Not revenge, an act of love. I'm going to invite, they're going to be the first person I invite to the cookout. They're, they're going to be the first, I'm going to send them flowers. 
Normally, you know, normally we send flowers to people that bless us. But what does Jesus say? Even the pagans bless those who bless them. Bless those who persecute you. Pray for them. At the top of your prayer list, put your three greatest enemies and ask for God's favor to just rain on them. Root out the areas of your life that are inconsistent. He, he says here, hey, imagine an amazing perfume, which as we know from the, from the Scriptures, other stories, the perfume was this expensive, um, very, um, like a treasure almost. But just one fly dying in that perfect concoction of, of beautiful scent will foul the whole thing up. Maybe, maybe your mother said to you, Maybe your mother, maybe your mother talked to you about brownies and said, "Just imagine one particle of poo in there." You know, like, or, or it, you know, I love so I love a fine dining experience, and my favorite fine dining dessert is creme brulee. Okay, very difficult to get just right, but imagine what they do to finish it is they take a blowtorch and they they crisp the top, and so just imagine like a single hair kind of sticking up as a, a singed hair, sticking up as the garnish on the one hair, whole thing is ruined. Like, that's just gross, even for me. <laughs> In the same way, Solomon says that a few ignored areas of sin and foolishness can ruin your life. Just a few. We see that in Solomon's life. He never dealt with some little areas of inconsistency and sin. God blessed him. God's favor was on him. But there were a few things early in his life he didn't deal with, and later they harvested into his complete destruction. And this is why church small, this is why small groups and church fellowship and church accountability are crucially essential. And that's, that's why I'm not just creating a Bible reading plan, but I'm going to ask you to do it with two or three other people. I want, I want you to think about it like this. I was trying to think of another way for you to think about it. The best, this, this is not my saying. Lots of people have said this. I don't know who to attribute it to. The best discipleship happens not in rows where you sit and listen to me, but in circles where other believers can help you apply the scriptures to areas of your life. And what I, what I want you to think about it is the difference between air war and ground war, okay? Every week, and then if you come here on Wednesday night a couple times a week, I carpet bomb you with the gospel, that's one part of the invasion strategy, okay? But, the, but, but you need ground troops, friends who can help you apply a promise of the gospel where you don't believe it, who can point out a blind spot that I can't name from the pulpit, but they could say to you one-on-one -on -one or in a group of three, hey, I've been noticing this. We've been studying this. I think the Holy Spirit is calling us all to deal with this in our hearts. We need both an air assault and a ground assault in our lives. It's not enough to just come in here and get carpet bombed. <laughs> Thirdly, third thing to take from the text, take risks. Take risks. Chapter 11, verse 4, he says this in a variety of ways. I'm just picking out verses to teach on, but they're all through Ecclesiastes. Every single one of these points I'm making tonight are named in multiple spots. He says, whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. And so what he's saying is you have a farmer here who never sows a seed because he's always so scared that the weather will not cooperate. He's always looking at the weather forecast and saying, man, it looks like it's going to be pretty windy today. It's going to scatter the seed off the good soil. Oh boy, there's clouds. It's not a good time of year to plant because the weather, it's not going to be enough sunshine, right? Right? 
Uh, what if it doesn't rain? What if there's a sandstorm, an earthquake, a meteor shower? You know, he's pointing out just someone who's always worried about the what ifs and never actually taking action. So throughout Ecclesiastes, the writer acknowledges that we can't control things, and there's nothing in life that guarantees success, not great skill, not careful planning, not vast resources, and he even, in chapter 9, verse 11, he says not even righteous living. You have to embrace, what he's saying here is you have to embrace that, that just things are havel, they're, they're crazy, they're absurd, they're out of control, um, and you just kind of embrace that and keep sowing seed. What he says in... Um, In chapter 11, verse 6, he says, Sow your seed in the morning, and at evening let not your hands be idle. For you don't know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. So what he's saying is just put yourself out there. Just take action. Constantly put your hands to the plow. Ask God to to give you success and, and be diligent in doing your part. Don't let, in other words, don't let the uncertainty of life or the fear of failure paralyze you. There might be half of us that struggle with impulse control, right? We really need to meditate on the previous point about seeking wisdom and getting ourselves in groups, people who can point out where we're just lunging at things and not being careful to keep sin from our hearts. So maybe half of us struggle with impulse control. But then there's another half of us that just really struggle to get going because of the uncertainty of life. Like we never become what we could be because we're constantly paralyzed by fear of the what-ifs. And Solomon is saying to those people, at some point, you just have to put it out out there because you can never move forward until you take a risk, until you trust, until you put your faith in something greater than yourself. And even in the midst of uncertainty, even in the midst of possible failure, you can trust God who promises to take care of you even if it doesn't work. I know people who have made investments. They did due diligence. They prayed about it. They tithed on their returns. They gave faithfully to the, and sacrificially to God's work even as they tried to build um, a life for their family, and it didn't work out. That doesn't mean that they did something wrong or God forgot them, just that in this havel of a world, that's how things work out sometimes. But you can trust that as long as you are seeking to obey God, and that's the key, because I, sometimes I hesitate to make points like this because I'm afraid people are just going to grab onto that and sanctify anything they want to do, right? <laughs> they put their own stamp of approval on it. Like, yeah, just got to just put yourself out there. God bless whatever I want. Uh, I just told somebody the other day, don't ask God, don't, don't ask God to sanctify your dreams. Ask God to sanctify your heart and follow his dreams. I just, just talked to somebody about that. So, but But if you are seeking to obey God, if you are loving Him with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, His promise to you is that you can walk in His Spirit and He will guide your steps and He will take care of you always. His promises will always overshadow your life. And even in failure, even in the valley of the shadow of death, Psalm 23, His goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. So live by wisdom. Take appropriate risks And trust that God will take care of you in success and failure. Don't be paralyzed by fear. Number four, don't be overly religious. Chapter 7, verse 16. This is one of the, like maybe the most shocking at first verses in in Ecclesiastes. Chapter 7, verse 16. He says, don't be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. What? Don't be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Then he says, don't be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? Number, verse 18, he says, it is good to grasp the one 
and not let go of the other. The man who fears God, reveres God, worships God, awes God, will avoid all extremes. So what is he saying here exactly? Is he telling you to balance a little wisdom with a little sin? But, you know, like he says, don't, don't go to either extreme. You know, be a centrist. Live in the middle. <laughs> no, 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 no. He's talking, he's, he's, first of all, make note that verse 18, he says, the man who fears God will avoid all extremes. So no one who fears God would ever deliberately tolerate sin in their lives. What he means is that we should not obsess about getting ourselves into a state of spiritual perfection because we think then and only then can we guarantee God's blessing and success in our lives. Okay, that's what he means. Is don't, don't be over-righteous, like constantly fretting, am I good enough? Because this is foolish for a couple of reasons. Number one, you can be perfect and still have things go wrong, as Solomon covers in other places, and as we see in the life of Job, and even with Jesus. Jesus did nothing wrong and still died our death, right? And second, no one on earth is actually sinless. Now, I would point out that as a good Wesleyan and as, as one who's filled with the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God, I believe that some people are sinning less and less and less and less, okay? But no one on earth is actually sinless. And so what Solomon's saying is the wise per- person recognizes, thankfully, that God does not condition his acceptance of us or blessing of us on our perfection. Jesus says uh, in the Sermon on the Mount that it rains on both the righteous and the unrighteous, okay? Um, there are a lot of people who every time something bad happens, they're like, what did I do wrong? What was God punishing me for? That's being overly righteous. That's being over-righteous, okay? Um, I'll give you an example. In college, I had a, a friend who's uh, was from a, uh, uh, a more Pentecostal background, okay? And so his car got broken into in downtown Kansas City and everything stolen out of it. And his mom came, uh, came down, his mom and dad came down, and she was lamenting that it was her fault that the car had gotten broken into. And so we're like, what, what are you talking about? Why, why is that? And she was like, well, before he came to college, we anointed his car with oil with, that I got from Israel. And but I anointed the, the front and not the back of the car, and they broke into the back of the car. <laughs> and we just looked at her, and we're like, oh, yeah, you're a terrible mother. Uh, no. <laughs> I, remember, I remember personally realizing that I was being excessively religious. I think it was around the time I first moved here because I was struggling with always wondering if my prayers were coming from the right motives to where I didn't even want to ask for anything for myself anymore because I was afraid that my motives were incorrect. And I remember right about that time reading a book um, by Paul Miller called A Praying Life. And he points out that when Jesus taught about prayer, he told us to come like children. And the stories he tells of adults praying are when adults act like petty children. Um, And so, that, so then he goes on to, to explain, and I now know this as a fact, when my children want something from me, they don't obsess about the why or analyze their motives, right? My kids don't say, what I mean by that is my kids don't say, Dad, I want to ask you for this, but I just can't get my heart into a pure enough state to feel like I can ask you for it with the right motives. You know, can you imagine my kids saying that? Um, No, what they do is they just tell me what they need repeatedly, and when I say no, that's just a piece of useless information to them and really an invitation for them to ask again in 10 more minutes. Rhett is a perfect example of this. In the morning, Rhett is our earliest bird. 
They're all kind of early birds, but he's our earliest bird, and he will, after much discipline, will, you'll, you'll, catch, you'll hear his little pitter-patter. He'll stop at our door. He'll peek in and uh, see, see if Ellie is still sleeping and if mom is still sleeping, and then uh, pitter-patter off again. Before, what he's wanting is he's wanting breakfast, okay? He's wanting to eat. That little man is wanting to eat. And so he's peeking in to see, and seeing us sleeping, it's, he doesn't think, oh, well, they'll just get up and they'll feed me when they're ready to. He's going to pitter-patter back every few minutes just to peek in. And then as soon as, I'm not kidding, I, I, he could be downstairs, and if the sheet moves, he will appear at the foot of our bed it's like, is it time for breakfast now? Like, I'm barely exaggerating. It's like he has this sixth sense, like, there's movement, breakfast time. And, and it, so, so no, is just, it's just a, it's an invitation to keep asking until we're ready to deliver what he feels like he needs, right? The author in the book, Brett Paul Miller, he says, often when we try to pray, we are immediately confronted in our own hearts with how unspiritual we are. In contrast, children never get frozen by their selfishness. They come just as they are, maybe totally self-absorbed, but how do they ask? How do little children ask? They just say what is on their minds. They have no awareness of what is appropriate or inappropriate. And so when Jesus commands us to pray this way, this isn't just a random observation about how parents respond to little children. This is the heart of the gospel. Now, what it, he's not saying to just demand from God whatever you want whenever you want. What he's saying is, God knows your, the state of your heart already. He saved you in that state with knowing that it was going to be a project to sanctify and set you apart and wash you and, and re- restore all of you. And so we don't, we don't need to go to God constantly fretting, did I ask for that in the right way? We just need to go to God understanding we need grace. And God gives that grace freely to us. That's why the author in Hebrews says that you can come to him as a father freely. Right into the throne room is the picture that he's given. Like, daddy is king, but he's my dad. And so I can go into the throne room, and I don't have to wait for the scepter to extend. He's already invited me when he stretched out his arms on the cross and said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. So don't be overly religious. This is what Solomon is hinting at. Look at what he says in in verse 20 of this same passage. He says, there's not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. God is aware of that. He knows you're sinful. And good news, he saved you anyway. So quit trying to become something and just trust in God's fatherly grace over your life to make you into what he wants you to be. It's in the coming to him that you will begin to be formed into his character and his likeness. It's in relationship with him that you will start to look more and more like him. Number five, put down your Messiah complex. Uh, chapter five, verse 18. Um, put down your Messiah complex. Solomon says, I realize that it's good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his work under the sun during the few days of life God has given him, for this is his lot, or this is his purpose. The Lord has a job for you, and he intends for you to do that job and then, and this is where some of us miss it, enjoy your life along the way as you do it. I'd say about 17% of us, we'll just throw that number out, live with a Messiah complex where we feel like, man, how could I ever relax? How can I ever enjoy life? I, don't, I can't take a vacation. There's just so much to do, and I need to, they need me. They need me to do it. I, I need to take care of it all. There was a time in my Christian life when I felt like every cause had to be mine, 
and I constantly felt guilty, like I was not doing enough. And then there was a mission trip that our church planned on Christmas break, and we really wanted teens to participate. That's why we planned it on Christmas break. I was the family pastor, but my wife at the time was teaching full-time, and so during the school year, there were precious, there was precious little time that we could be together, all together, with our whole family, where we could get away from work, because you can't just take days off whenever you want as a teacher. You don't get to use your vacation whenever you want when you're a teacher, and I knew, like, my gut was telling me the, right, the righteous thing for me to do is to go on vacation with my family. But that felt so wrong. I just felt like, no, I need to be at every trip. I need to, I'm the pastor. I should be leading the way of spiritual piety and spiritual works. And I expressed my struggle to my pastor, who basically just listened and was like, well, let me know what the Holy Spirit leads you to do. And I was like, ah, I wanted you to tell me what the Holy Spirit wants me to do. Like, what do you mean let you know? Like, I'm telling you I'm struggling. And I think he knew that he had a pastor who was dealing with some legalism, with a little bit of a Messiah complex, and he was just going to let me land, let me decide what kind of faith I was going to live out. And I came back to him, and I was literally sweating, literally sweating when I sat down, and I I told him I wasn't going to go on this trip. And he was like, well, I'm sure you and your family will have a great time. We can't wait to tell you all about the trip, and, uh, and God's, God's going to use it to further your ministry. And I was like, he's going to use it to further? I'm not going. And he's like, yeah, but you're not the only one who does work in the lives of these teenagers and in the life of our church. In fact, you don't really do anything. God does. It's like, I wanted to argue with him, you know, like, what do you mean? <laughs> but... God was teaching me something, that not, and, and I had to realize that not everything that comes from heaven has my name on it, okay? Not everything that, has, that comes from... Now, God does have something for you to do. That's what the other 83% of us need to hear. 17% of us have a Messiah complex. The other 83% need to hear, you need to get your hands out from underneath your bottom and, and jump, in, jump, on, jump on board, okay? Uh, figure, but figure it out. Figure out what it is that is from heaven that God wants you to do. Do it, and do it well, and then be happy, and enjoy life. Enjoy your life. Don't go through life as if the responsibility for all of it rests on you. Enjoy your life. I love this verse. I just came across this in the Psalms, and it has to be for tonight. Psalm 50, uh, verse 12, says... If I were hungry, this is God speaking, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? He's saying, do I need your sacrifices and your offerings? Is that what, is that what nourishes me and keeps me going? No, <laughs> the world is mine and all that is in it. So you sacrifice your thank offerings to God, fulfill your vows to the Most High. In other words, do what he's called you to do. And call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you, and you will honor me. That's, don't, I just love that. God is saying, listen, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, because, because, when I, because you already have this problem with thinking that you're God and that I need you. You have a Messiah complex. But what I need you to understand is I'm always going to be the one who delivers. I'm always going to be the one who saves. I don't need you, but I want you. I love you on purpose. I chose you. Because that was, that was my pleasure, <laughs> okay? I just love that picture. So put down your Messiah complex. Number six, find happiness in the present, not the future. If 
Find happiness in the present, not the future. A theme throughout Ecclesiastes is that we're all going to die. We need to think about it, and we need to live in light of it. We should live for things, though, that go over the sun. But what Ecclesiastes also encourages us to do is to live in light of a truth that is later fulfilled in the Gospels, in, in the coming of Jesus, and that is that God is bringing what's over the sun, under the sun, so that the two become one. God, the, in other words, the kingdom of God is breaking in. The kingdom of heaven is here and now. It, it has come, it is coming, and nothing's going to stop it. That, that's to say that heaven has already begun breaking through, so we should live and enjoy life right now. We should live heaven on earth. So um, 18th century French, French philosopher, Blaise Pascal, he's my favorite philosopher besides Immanuel Kant. Uh, not that that necessarily matters, but just fun fact, if you're ever doing pastor trivia. Uh, in, this, in this book called The, the Pensee, uh, it looks like Penzies, but it's pronounced Pensee, um, he says, we seem never to be able to be happy with the present. Either we yearn for the future and wish it would hurry up and get here, or we mourn the past and wish it had not flown by so quickly. Are not all your thoughts concerned with either the past or the future? We scarcely ever think about the present. And then he does this little side aside about how we see the present as pain. And then he says, most of the time, we only think of the present to lament how quickly it is becoming past or to plan for our future. The present is never our end. The present is our grief because it is passing or our means, and the future alone is our end. So we never live. We only hope to live someday because we are always preparing to be happy. We never are so. If you find that more confusing than profound, let me instead provide you with this quote from Andy Bernard on the TV show The Office. I wish there were a way you could know you were living in the good old days before they pass you by. I wish there were a way you could know you were living in the good old days before they pass you by. If you're not happy now, it's not some change of circumstance that's going to make you happy. What Solomon says is happiness is a gift God gives to you in the present. So don't think if you're not happy and content now that you're going to get some level, some, to some new level, some greater income, some life goal, new circumstance, and then be happy. There's a CEO in an interview in Forbes magazine. He said, I climbed all the way to the top of the ladder of success only to find it was leaning against the wrong building. Can you imagine? God is already giving you everything that you need for life and godliness. If you're not trusting him for that now, you won't trust and believe it when you add something else to your life. And so what I fear a lot of times as a pastor is that many will one day look around and realize they gave away the greatest moments of life to get to some elusive future that didn't deliver what it offered. Solomon says God alone can give happiness. And happiness is not found in some future condition. It's found in the present, the life that God has given you to live right now. And if you are not happy now, don't think or don't look to some change in circumstance that will make you happy. Look to your relationship with God because that is the key to happiness in whatever circumstances you are in. 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. And lastly, live as though you're going to give an account. Let's circle back to chapter 12, these verses that sum up everything he's written. And I'm going to read them again. He says in 13, all, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. We dealt with that in point number one. 
But verse 14 says, For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So live as though you're going to give an account. This last lesson is the one that overshadows all of them, and it is never forget the one that you're going to have to stand in front of and, and give an account to. Wisdom begins where? Does anybody know? Where does, where does the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord, the awe, the reverence, the worship of, the remembrance of the Lord. Wisdom begins there. This is what Pascal says about, about death and our lack of consideration. He says, the human race nowhere shows its insanity more than in how it deals with death. The way that, human, the way that humans deal with death, he says, is like, uh, is like life is a great big party. And everybody is dressed in, some, some people dress up, some people play music or dance, some people, some people uh, bring art or decoration to the party. They all find these means of distraction. And every so often, the door to the party bursts open and an awful monster comes into the party, grabs somebody, mauls them in front of everybody, drags their bleeding corpse through the, through the party and out the door, and everybody kind of looks around like, whoa, that was crazy. And then somebody shouts, strike up the band again. And they go on as if nothing happened. And that happens again and again. The monster comes in, mauls, tears, tears away, and the party resumes. People go back to their distractions. And even as they realize eventually that monster's coming for them, they continue instead of thinking about how should I prepare myself for the fact that this party is going to end. They just think about the party and its distractions. And he says that humanity nowhere shows its insanity more than in that it does not take seriously that 100%, the death rate is held up at a rate of 100%. It's, it's, it's never dropped. 100% of us are going to die. And so he says, wisdom is living in light of a greater power and a greater treasure. Or, like Moses said in Psalm 90, verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to seek wisdom. Teach us to, to, to think about death that we may learn how to live. Or Craig Groeschel says it this way, know how to count your days, then make your days count. Interestingly, both Jesus and Paul quote Solomon's teaching in Ecclesiastes where, where Solomon says the best we can do in life is eat, drink, and be happy, and they confront, Jesus and Paul confront that as woefully insufficient as a total view of life. Jesus said it is the fool who only focuses on eating, drinking, and being merry and forgets about judgment. Paul said if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we should only seek to be happy in this life, but if he did rise from the dead, then we can embrace sacrifice joyfully knowing that we have eternal joy waiting and that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. The author of Ecclesiastes ends the book reminding you that there's more to life than what you see under the sun and that there is a judgment day coming. And thinking about that day, honestly, it should scare the unbeliever. It should. It, not, not, because of, not because of the threat of hell and vindictive revenge on sin, like, um, but because for the unbeliever, it means that everything that you lived for in life was futile. You've lost it all, and you have nothing, absolutely nothing to enjoy in eternity. I'd, I'd encourage you, in your conversations, like, like don't, don't act like hell's not a real thing, but just talk about it in practical terms of what people strive for. I found this to be much more useful to say, listen, even if you're right and there is no hell, 
what kind of life is this that eventually it all just, it's over and it, what did it matter? Like, what I'm proposing is that Jesus is not only the best way to live life, but He is the hope that we have that the good things in this life will continue and be even greater good than they are now. That's what I celebrate. That's why I'm not trying to just avoid hell. That, I mean, you're right. God is a vindictive jerk if that's, what this all is, if that's what this is all about, to just see who can be the most religious person. But no, God is a good God who gave us good things and we messed it up and now He's trying to make it all right. And what I'm living for is the hope that the best things that I see in this world will be eternally present in His presence. That's what I'm living for. I just think that's a way more inspiring vision than just get out of hell and then spend forever on the clouds in a diaper and you know walking around streets of gold to connect your cloud to other people's clouds. You know what I mean? Do you, do you see what I'm getting at? Put away these simple ideas of God. The believer, for the believer though, judgment is a comfort. The belief, for the believer, it means that all that we've lost in the Havel will be regained and we will experience perfect joy forever in the presence of the one who said in Psalm 16 verse 11, in my presence is joy and eternal pleasure at my right hand. The, for the, the, there's a saying that goes this way. It says, for the unbeliever, the world is the closest thing to heaven you will ever experience. For the believer, this world is the closest thing to hell you will ever experience. For the unbeliever, the judgment day means the end of goodness. For the believer, it means the end of pain. When it, all, when it is all said and done, the writer of Ecclesiastes wants us to bring us face to face with the absurdity of life in the face of the certainty of death, not to lead us to despair, but to urge us to seek a hope that death can't take away. That's what I'm seeking, is a hope that death can't touch. Have you found that hope? Does, does, does what Jesus has done for you and the life He is providing and, and the sanctification of the Spirit that is offered, does it still inspire you to joy? Does it still inspire you to new life? And are you prepared to stand before God? Not just were you saved, but are you being saved now? Are you prepared for life over the sun, for life after this life? You can be, and it's as simple as trusting that He is who He says He is, that He'll do everything He promised, and that the only way to find any meaning in all of this crazy Havel is to live your life in Him. Heavenly Father, You're so good. And when I look around, in spite of the pain and craziness, the, the, the hatred and brokenness that could so easily consume my thoughts, whether it be from watching the news or, or hearing the hurt in my friends' lives or, or seeing the, the, just the litany of, of ways that the devil is trying to steal and kill and destroy your goodness in my friends and, and family in this 